Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Yes, it is Tuesday after Memorial Day weekend. I hope you had a blessed, solemn, rewarding holiday weekend, one in which you cherished your fallen soldiers, your heroes of wars past and present, because that's the reason why we have Memorial Day. It isn't just to get a Monday off, like Kamala Harris may have suggested in her ill-fated tweet last Friday that brought her a lot of blowback on social media and the political world. She spent a lot of the weekend trying to save face. It isn't just a three-day weekend to go partying. It's also to remember the extraordinary sacrifices of generations of men and women in our fighting forces who fought for our freedom, fought to preserve the greatest aspects of the American experience, and have left us with the greatest country the world has ever known. And uh, I know I spent a lot of time reflecting on that, talking to my family, my son about it, and just truly appreciating the magnitude of the people that have given their lives for this country unselfishly. Uh, when you think it's in the millions, um, it makes you shudder sometimes to think that there are that many good souls that believed enough in America to shed their blood and to be to go to that eternal resting place in heaven, not having finished their complete life because they wanted this country to be free and remain free from totalitarianism and so many other threats that have confronted America over the 245, almost 46 years of its existence. I, over the weekend, was driving to a store by an overpass, and there was an older gentleman with a veterans of foreign war hat and jacket on. And he was with the flag of the overpass over the I-81 interstate in Virginia and asking people that if they supported those who died in wars, who fought for their freedom and gave the ultimate sacrifice to toot their horn, it was the noisiest intersection you could find. Everybody was tooting their horns in salute of our incredible brave men and women, the fallen heroes of the United States military, the Marines, the Army soldiers, uh, the Navy men and women, the Coast Guard men and women, uh, really an extraordinary, the Air Force fighters, just um, special operators. It was so amazing. And here's a man who survived war. And on his Memorial Day, he spent his day not out grilling hamburgers, 
not out having a good time, like Kamala Harris suggested. He spent his day honoring his fallen comrades by asking people on the Interstate 81 overpass to honk if you loved America and loved the sacrifice and appreciated the sacrifice of our fallen heroes. What an experience. It made me smile. First, for the dignity and compassion of that man to give up his weekend. And he was older, much older than I. And to stand out there in a warm day and implore others to salute our troops, I just thought was amazing, the fallen. It was a great, great uh, experience. And then to see just how many people, hardly a car passed who didn't honk. Hardly a car passed. Everyone was showing their patriotism. Everyone was showing their enormous appreciation for the sacrifices of those who gave their life for our freedom. And I have to tell you, it just touched me in a way that few other moments this weekend could touch me. What a great man, what a great idea, and what a great country was affirmed by that event. I really, really enjoyed it. All right, now we're going to, in a few minutes, have Ron Dermer, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States. He just stepped down back in September. A tremendous diplomat, someone well-steeped in the politics of Israel, the U.S.-Israeli relationship, and who has become a vocal, vocal, outspoken critic of the rise of anti-Semitism on our own soil, the rise of hatred and violence targeted against Jews and, of course, others as well. Uh, Ron Dermer is an amazing interview. You're going to want to hear this. He has a lot to say about the Netanyahu administration, whether it will survive this new challenge of coalition governments allegedly forming in Israel. Uh, Obviously, uh, Dermer served for Prime Minister Netanyahu for seven plus years as his chief diplomat in the United States and before that as an advisor. I think you're going to want to hear him. He's going to give us the latest news from the ground on Israel, on the tensions with Hamas, on the uh, peace deals with the Arab neighbors, and of course, on the subject that really matters to me most lately. I've been very concerned about this, the growing, growing rise of anti-Semitism, hateful acts of violence, targeting Jews in America, almost unthinkable, unfathomable a few years ago, now uh, becoming far too regular. And we're going to talk to the ambassador about that. Now, before we do, and before we go to our first commercial break, I want to just throw out something for you to take a look at. Um, I've been doing a lot of reporting over the last year on the intelligence communities and the scientific communities approach to determining the origins of COVID-19, the deadly virus that wreaked havoc on the world and taken more than a million lives worldwide. Um, And we were very early on at Just the News, one of those to posit the idea that there were some in the United States intelligence community who believed that a lab leak was just as plausible as the prevailing theory at the time, which was a natural evolution of the virus in the wild, jumped from an animal to a human in China. That's how we had the thing. We had a lot of evidence, including a whistleblower, including some information from the Livermore Laboratories in the Energy Department, our main bioweapons expert in the country. Uh, We had uh, some intelligence from the State Department and from other U.S. intelligence sources that really indicated as far back as March and April of last year, just like President Trump was saying, not like the rest of the world, but like President Trump was saying, there was reason to believe that this could have been a leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology and that uh, it ought to be investigated. And 
the intelligence community, the Democrats and mainstream media were going, no, 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 you're wrong. You're wrong. This is a natural evolution. Anyone who thinks otherwise is being racist or xenophobic or engaged in conspiracy theories. And some of our stories at Just the News were flagged or censored on Facebook, even though they were impeccably accurate. They were directly cited to on-the-record sources. Well, obviously, the world has turned in the last few weeks, and for some reason, the U.S. intelligence community is reversing itself, saying, oh, no, it's very possible. Even Anthony Fauci did his latest flip-flop. No, no, very possible that this virus came from a lab. We need to investigate it more. Big, big flip-flop. Well, to me, watching this play out was very similar to my experience of early on reporting that the Russia collusion story was bunk, that the U.S. Intelligence Committee thought it was bogus, that the CIA did not believe Carter Page was a Russian stooge because he was working for them, that the Steele dossier was bought and paid for by the Clinton Foundation and was filled with Russian disinformation. When I was reporting that, there was this incredible pushback in the Intelligence Committee, the Democratic establishment, and the news media. And I this weekend, I went back and I put a timeline together for all of us here to look at, at the... What the intelligence community said, what the establishment media said, what the health professionals like Fauci said, and what was actually sitting in plain view in open source intelligence. And I'll tell you what, the similarities between the reversal of the Russia collusion uh, story and the reversal of the, it's a sure thing that the virus came from the wild only, no lab leak, that same evolution very similar. And it raises some serious questions. I interviewed several very important uh, intelligence professionals. Daniel Hoffman, former CIA station chief in Moscow. Uh, Fred Flights, former chief of staff to the National Security Council. And the uh, Cash Patel, national security, uh, one of the national security advisors for the president, former chief of staff to the Pentagon, defense secretary under Donald Trump. And they all said the same thing to me. There is reason to be concerned that the intelligence community dropped the ball. There has been an intelligence failure. I, I think Dan Hoffman said, listen, the fact that a year later we still don't know the origins are, is prima facie proof that the intelligence community let down this country, let down the policymakers. Patel, Cash Patel, and uh, Fred Flights went a step further and said, we believe politics is so infested inside the intelligence community right now that whenever Trump said boo, the intelligence community would say bah, even if the facts weren't there, they were just unwilling to allow Donald Trump to be right about anything. And that that is, they said, very dangerous to the future of this country, very dangerous. So I have the whole timeline. I have all the interviews up on just the news. Uh, Echoes of Russia collusion reversal in the COVID-19 origins probe. Take a look at it. The statements from these longtime and very respected intelligence professionals should open your eyes. You should be concerned about what they're saying. Uh, And you uh, can take a look at the timeline. I always think that timelines are such a valuable tool, information-wise, public policy-wise. You just can't ignore specific events on a timeline. And when you look at the specific events, you're going to see the Lawrence Livermore Lab in May of 2020, uh, National Review assembling as a conservative magazine, open source intelligence in April of 2020, the State Department coming into possession of intelligence about workers at the Wuhan lab getting sick with COVID-like symptoms back in October, November. All of this is in a timeline. 
when you look at it, you'll understand why the evolution should be troubling, whether we should be questioning. doesn't mean we have to conclude yet, but we should be investigating whether politics infected uh, the intelligence community's assessment. And I think when you look at what was said in April 2020, you may conclude based on what was already in the public domain, there may not have been a basis for the intelligence community to be so adamant that this was a naturally occurring evolutionary virus from the wild. I think when you look at it, you'll see that there was plenty of open source intelligence to support the idea that a lab leak was just as likely from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And I think you'll understand something that Devin Nunez said just a couple of weeks ago in one of my stories that I broke a couple of weeks ago. And what is that? There were some intelligence analysts from the very beginning that believed this was a lab leak, not a naturally occurring virus, but they were suffocated. They were censored. They were shunned. Their analysis didn't get to the policymakers who most needed it. That should be troubling. Listen, intelligence is a science. It requires the prevailing view and the countervailing views to be shared and the reasons for both so that policymakers can be most informed to make the most engaged, smart decision. But if you suppress, censor, dissident views in the intelligence community, you do so at the risk of potentially having a reversal like we just gone through with the Wuhan lab leak theory. It went from being, it absolutely didn't happen to, hey, it's plausible, it may have. We still don't know, but the idea that we couldn't have a debate for a year because Facebook fact checkers and Facebook Democrats and the mainstream news media and the intelligence community were censoring and domineering the debate on something that truly wasn't that strongly sourced That should concern all of us. It's bad for intelligence, bad for policymakers, bad for the United States of America. Check out the story. I think you'll enjoy it. All right, let's go to that commercial break and hear from our great sponsors, our great advertisers. We'll be right back after hearing from them. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, somebody who is at the heart of the uh, long-lasting U.S.-Israel relationship, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Ron Dermer. Ambassador Dermer, great to have you on the show. Good to be with you, John. There is so much going on in, the, uh, in, in Israel right this moment, in fact. I wonder if we could just start there. Uh, there, are, there were the announcements this weekend that the Bennett Coalition may have enough uh, support to to create a new government. Do you think this is Netanyahu, Bibi Netanyahu's last stand, or is there still some tricks left in his bag? What what do you think will play out over the next 24, 48 hours? Well, I, I certainly hope it, it's not his last stand for, for Israel's sake, for America's sake, right. and, and really for the sake of our common future. Uh, I think he's been a tremendous leader, um, one of the longest serving uh, – actually, he is the longest serving prime minister in Israel's history, but it's it's rare that you have a leader – uh, in a Western country, in a Western democracy that um, has had the length of tenure that the prime minister has had. He's so been true. 15 years in office. Yeah. Um, and right now you have an attempt to uh, oust him and several small parties 
all getting together to try to take uh, take down uh, Gulliver. So you got a lot of Lilliputian parties <laughs> trying to get together to take down Gulliver. So yeah. they're going to try. And people have been trying for a long time. I don't know if they'll succeed. If they do, um, we'll probably know in the next uh, an announcement in the next day or two. Right. Uh, and then and then the that government would have to be sworn in in the next week or so. Um, so it's a matter of several days. And if they succeed in doing it, the prime minister has said that he would then lead the opposition because he doesn't think this will be a good government for Israel and to try to take down that government. Uh, and some governments have a very short shelf life. And in they this do. particular case, you have a government that really combines people on the well to the right and on the far left together with also some anti-Zionist parties thrown in as well. So it's not clear that there's any cohesion to that government other than the fact that they don't want to see Netanyahu as prime minister. But Prime Minister Netanyahu got by far the largest number of votes in the election. But we have a very disparate political system in Israel. It is sometimes hard for Americans to understand. Uh, and if you guys think you have a difficult time with two parties, try 12. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yes. And then you'll realize how difficult it is. And, and frankly, we're not a country that doesn't face enormous challenges. And I think to be dealing with this level of political instability in all sorts of small parties when you have so many great challenges, I think it's been a, a crutch that Israel's had um, for for really for several decades. And I think we've succeeded despite our political system, not because of it. It's very good for representation because everybody gets a seat at the table. Right. But it's very bad for government and for governing because it's really hard to cobble together these coalitions. And, you know, you have two major parties and there's disputes within the parties and you try to work them out through your party system. And then ultimately one party you know, is in charge and you have obviously the separate branches of government, anything and everything. Israel is much more, much more confusing. And we can spend all the time talking about this issue. Let's just say we might see a change in the next few days. I hope not. If there is, he'll lead the opposition. Uh, and if there is somebody that can pull a rabbit out of his hat, then it would certainly be the prime minister who's been as good a politician That's as he has thing. been a leader. Yeah. And that rarely comes together both being able to, I think, recognize the dangers Israel faces, lead the effort to meet those dangers, to thwart them, and to seize opportunities, but at the same time, to manage this really, really crazy politics. So it's the Lilliputians versus Gulliver. Uh, we're in round one. Uh, actually, round, actually, round four. Round four, actually. Uh, That's right. Yes. And round three, Gulliver came out on top. We'll see what will happen in round four. But this thing may go on for more rounds than people think. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's going to be um, a, a lot of uh, instability and uncertainty, and I think it will extend out. Um, if you're uh, in the region and you're one of the Arab allies that just recently signed an Abraham Accord, or if you're um, uh, you know, uh, a player in the United States, this moment here, how concerned are you about the tinderbox of the Middle East? As Hamas and Iran tried to escalate a second time to take advantage or to test uh, these coalitions, what, what, what do you think is the most perilous um, forces right now uh, in the region? Well, the most dangerous thing is Iran. The most, they're the source of so much instability throughout the region. Um, and I think one of the reasons, John, we were able to have this breakthrough for peace, I know everybody sort of doesn't want to talk about that, because it, it is a different paradigm of how you achieve peace. And right. We had a failed paradigm for about 25 years. And Israel, just so your listeners know, we had a first peace agreement with Egypt, which was in 1979. And then we waited uh, another 15 years to get peace with Jordan. So 
there were two peace agreements in Israel's first 72 years. And in the last year, actually in several months, we made peace with four other uh, Arab countries. So we went from two to six all of a sudden. So what happened? And I think people failed to appreciate the real changes that have happened in the Middle East, where our, several of our Arab neighbors understand that it is in their security interest and economic interest to move closer to Israel. And that's a result of factors that have really been going on in this region for the last decade, when a lot of people were not paying attention, right. which include the Arab Spring. It includes, frankly, the empowering of Iran. Uh, that happened under the previous, previous administration that went into the nuclear deal, the Obama administration, that strengthened Iran, and that brought Israel and the Arab states together. You also had the rise of ISIS, which is the Sunni side of the radical spectrum, and that was a concern for several of the states of the Gulf. And another thing that is not understood is there is a very <laughs> strong perception, and it's really a reality, um, that the United States is withdrawing its military from the Middle East. And this yeah. is something that connects President Obama to President Trump to President Biden. No one's looking to increase the American military footprint uh, in the Middle East. And so what that means for the calculus of these countries is, well, if I have all these threats with Iran, with ISIS, with all things that are happening in the Middle East, and the United States is leaving, then I think Israel becomes more important in their strategic calculus. And the other thing, John, and, and I, you know Israel, uh, we are a second, the second great center of innovation in the world after Absolutely. Silicon Valley. Yeah. So if you, if you think about the traditional Arab boycott of Israel, it's about as, as smart um, as Oregon, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, Arizona, and half of Southern California boycotting Silicon Valley. It makes no sense. <laughs> it doesn't. And some of these leaders in the Arab world who are thinking about, you know, what's going to happen when no one's focused, you know, no one's using oil anymore. What's going to happen 50 years, 100 right. years from now? How are we going to develop our country? So you have those forces coming together and understanding that an alliance with Israel actually is good for them for their security and prosperity. Now you had in the Trump administration, an administration that came in and they did several things which enabled us to surface it. The most important, in my view, was they confronted Iran, our common enemy. And by confronting Iran, that provided the political space for the Arab leaders uh, to come into an alliance yep. and an open alliance with Israel under the wings of the American uh, administration. The second thing, was tremendous support for Israel, meaning an embrace of Israel. And the message that that sent to the entire region, if that you wanted to have better relations with Washington, a good way to do that is to have better relations with Jerusalem. Rem remember, these peace agreements happened after Jerusalem was recognized as our capital, and the, American, uh, the U.S. moved its embassy to Jerusalem. After the Golan Heights, um, is Israeli sovereignty was recognized by the United States the on the Golan Heights. And then after the United States made changes in how they their whole policy towards the Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria, all of those things, John, people said, many of the same people that were failing at peacemaking making for 25 years, this is going to be a disaster for peace. They did. Instead, the, instead the opposite yeah. happened because what they saw, what the Arab states saw, is an administration that was confronting Iran and embracing Israel. Both of them brought that brought uh, both of those policies brought those states to Israel. And the third thing was they did not give the veto power to the Palestinians because the old line of thinking, John, was that the road to peace must yep. go through Ramallah. That's you right. Know, you have to make peace with the Palestinians, or you're never going to solve to this problem. Yeah. And and what and what that did was essentially, I mean, when people would tell me that, 
they would say, well, you know, if you make peace with the Palestinians, you have peace with 21 Arab states. I said, well, that's great. What if the Palestinians don't want to make peace with us and they haven't wanted to for a century? Are we just going to wait and hold up our future because of, uh, you know, of, 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 of one uh, a territory uh, in the Middle East? What about the interests of all these Arab states, which are vast countries and much bigger populations? You've got three, four hundred million people uh, in the Middle East and you're going to have a, a couple of million uh, five million, six million, whatever it is, Palestinians, and they're going to hold up the ability to advance with all these states. And I think these Gulf countries, the UAE is certainly one of them, led by the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed. Yeah. I think Saudi Arabia. There's no question that that gave tacit backing uh, had to this, to. if yep. not over because of Bahrain and other parties in the region. Right. They understood that they really wanted to move forward, and I think that combination of factors confronting Iran, embracing Israel leaving the door open to the Palestinians, but not letting them veto progress, that enabled us to do it. If the Biden administration, and I have no doubt about this, if they would continue that policy that, would, that succeeded by confronting Iran, embracing Israel, and not giving the Palestinians veto power, you're going to see peace expand. If they don't, if they move towards appeasing Iran, which unfortunately looks like they're doing by rejoining the nuclear deal with Iran, and, and that's what it is, appeasement. Right. We can cover it up with all things. Yeah, but it is. Words about it. You know, I'm a former diplomat, but the A word, this is appeasement. That's what it is. And it, it, by appeasing Iran, they haven't, you know, in any way confronted Israel. And, and, I, and we're thankful. I have to tell you, John, that President Biden, during this last confrontation with Hamas, we're thankful that he backed Israel's right to defend itself. Um, but I think the big change that has happened is the shift in Iran. And by shifting to Iran, it actually takes all the oxygen out of the room for these Arab political leaders. And I think it's going to be very hard to get new Arab countries to move forward because they won't do it under an administration that is appeasing what is their greatest enemy. That's and the key. I think that's we, we're going to have to work together with the uh, with both our peace partners who've already moved into open alliances with Israel. Uh, and I think that you'll see this strengthen underneath the surface as they become more and more concerned of what Iran can do to them. But I mean, think to surface it, we're going to have to wait until there's a U.S. policy that takes advantage of this moment. Yeah, it's it's amazing how the change in presidency really has changed the outlook and, and the strategic options in the region. When, when Biden uh, resumed the Palestinian aid, when he resumed the March uh, to resume the um, uh, nuclear agreement was that Hamas's go order? Was that their signal to say, you know, let's try the rockets again? Let's see what. Let's test the uh, the waters. Um, does the Biden administration essentially own that moment of violence a few weeks ago? No, I wouldn't say that. I think that this actually has to do, uh, John, with internal Palestinian politics. You know, you have uh, it's hard to keep track of all these players in the Middle East. I'm right. sure for listeners, but you have Hamas, which is a terror organization that rules Gaza. And just to remind your listeners, this is an organization that is genocidal. They actually right. call in their charter for they the murder do. of Jews worldwide, and they celebrated on 9-11, and they mourned the death of bin Laden officially. And so that's what Israel's dealing with in Gaza <laughs> uh, with uh, Hamas. On the other side, in Judea, Samaria, what most of the world calls the West Bank, you have the Palestinian Authority. And there is a political battle between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas about control of Palestinian politics. And what happened is Abu Mazen, who's the head of the Palestinian Authority, he said he was going to go to an election. 
And he understood that he was going to lose that election to Hamas, to this terror organization. And he decided to pull back and to not have it. And he used an excuse that a few hundred people were not going to be able to vote in Jerusalem. But everybody knew what the real story was. And when he pulled back, Hamas that wanted to take over Palestinian politics decided to do this move against Israel. And they started stirring the pot. They stirred the pot in a, in a neighborhood in Jerusalem. Then they stirred the pot in the Temple Mount, at the mosque right. in the Temple Mount, claiming that Israel was, you know, trying to destroy, take over, which was all, you know, all just a libel, a libel that can be very deadly. And then they fired a rocket in Jerusalem, several rockets towards Jerusalem. And what they wanted to do was be seen as the defenders of the Palestinians in Jerusalem. And I think they were, frankly, very surprised at the forceful response that Israel had to yeah. them. I don't and think they were counting on the counteroffensive. No, they thought because, you know, we, we had a round, we had a, a, about four, this, we talked about round four, there's been round four also in Gaza. So in Gaza, the round one was in 2008, 2009. Then you had round two in 2012. You had a third round in 2014. And then you have the round now in 2021. And in between those rounds, you've had several mini rounds. Right. And what they probably thought is they're going to fire a few rockets. Israel's going to respond a little bit here and there, and then it's going to get back to normal. and They're going to come out with some political victory. And instead, Israel decided enough is enough and hit them very hard and took out uh, a couple hundred uh, terrorists, including a lot of, you know, a lot of the brains behind their weapons making capabilities, took out a lot of their weapons manufacturing capabilities and also took out this subterranean tunnel network that they have which is almost like an underground a city of tunnels where they right. move fighters and weapons from one place to the other, which is a huge intelligence success in Israel to hit this thing in the surgical way that we did. And they were hit very hard. Now, the question is, is that restored deterrence? Uh, you know, we don't know yet. Uh, did, do, do they think that this was a mistake? My guess is they think it was a mistake what they did. But how long this is going to last, I don't know, because Hamas you know, is wedded to our destruction. And they're not the only players here. You have Iran backing them. Right. And Iran is sitting back watching this, and that's great for them. So I don't think I would certainly not blame the Biden administration for the intra-Palestinian politics and what Hamas decided to do. And we were we were pleased that when we had this confrontation, that President Biden, you know, against a lot of people in, in his own party and certainly a lot of calls internationally said, we and I back Israel's right to defend itself, which I personally think should be a no-brainer when right. we're fighting a terror organization. Exactly. We shouldn't have any equivalence between Israel and a terror organization. But, you know, you know, given how things have happened in the past from time to time, we were pleased that, you know, we had that backing. But I think in a general way, if you take a step back, whether it's Hamas or policy to Iran or any of the issues in the Middle East, when America projects strength, that is better for your partners and allies in the region. When America projects weakness, it's worse. And, and, and that was something that I think people have to focus on in, in the coming weeks and months, because going back to a nuclear deal with Iran, when you have all the leverage vis-a-vis -vis Iran, the enormous pressure that was put by the Trump administration on Iran with all the restoration of sanctions, and Iran is really on the ropes, and then to give up all that pressure, yeah. to go back and take the, the foot Iran, off that pedal right away. It's breathtaking. It's absolutely breathtaking. And, you know, people say, well, but the policy wasn't working. You know, Iran is still standing. They haven't been knocked out yet. The regime hasn't been knocked out. Well, you know, here's the problem. First of all, they're weakened. They've been starved of 
hundreds of billions of dollars of cash. They're also the main the main terrorist that was leading their campaign throughout the region. Yep. He was taken out, Qasem Soleimani, uh, uh, about a little about a year and a half ago by uh, by President Trump, and they were really on the ropes. But what Iran was hoping for was a lifeline. And for the last year and a half, as the sanctions campaign was really starting to bite, because they only had crippling sanctions, the U.S. administration really only began, people forget this, in May 2019. 2019, yeah. Before that, you know, it took about a year and a half to withdraw from the deal. And then it was another year, from May 18 to May 19, where there were still waivers that were given to Iran to sell oil. And that's where Iran gets its big money, its ability to sell its oil. So when those waivers were taken away, the economy really collapsed in Iran. And their foreign reserves collapsed, and the amount of oil that they were selling a day collapsed. And they were facing a year and a half of massive pressure. But guess what? There was a lifeline that was thrown to them. And the lifeline that was thrown to them was, you know what? The U.S. may change its policy following November 2020. And you know why they believe that? Is because that's what they said. That's what the incoming Biden administration said. That's frankly what all the candidates who were running were saying on the other side of the political aisle. They said, if we get in, we're going to, first thing we're going to do is restore the nuclear deal with Iran. So when these are, when, when this Iranian regime is drowning and they see that, hey, guess what? Boat's on the way. Uh, the, the boat is on the way. So tread water for another year and a half because the United States will change its policy. That was something that I think kept them going. I think if Biden would have come in, and I would still implore him to do it now, the administration, if he comes in, if he would keep the pedal on the gas, I'm mixing metaphors a little bit here, but if he would keep the pressure on Iran, then I think that they can't sustain this for another four years. And then maybe, you know, either the regime collapses, which would be the best of all worlds, or you get an actual, uh, an agreement with them because of their desperation yep. that actually beneficial to the Iran's region path through the bomb, because this, this, but this, agreement that was made, the nuclear deal with Iran, it doesn't block Iran's path to the bomb. It doesn't. It actually pays it, and it pays it with gold. And I can tell you, as Israel's ambassador who was in the trenches on this issue for seven years, believe me, John, if there was a plan on the table that would block Iran's path to the bomb- You would have been there? I would be going on every single podcast in America telling them to support this plan. The reason why Israel opposed it, the reason why Prime Minister Netanyahu opposed it, is because it doesn't do it. It paves Iran's path to to, uh, a nuclear arsenal in a few years, and it pays it with gold. It's very dangerous, and I hope it doesn't happen. If it does, it's going to be a big blow to our security, a big blow to the security of your Arab partners in the region, and it's going to be a big blow to the prospects of peace. Yeah, it is remarkable at how, how dangerously close we are to that moment. Um, I want to take a step back and take a look at what's been going on in the United States. You have been such an eloquent voice speaking out against anti-Semitism. And I really, the whole last decade, you've been just seeing this creeping anti-Semitism from the right, from the left. Um, and, and now it has gotten to a point where the attacks, the the rhetoric, the hatred uh, is unlike anything I've seen in my lifetime. How did America get to this point? I mean, you, you've been very uh, forceful on this. And uh, for a long time, a lot of people were ignoring what was going on, but you can't ignore this situation. What happened? Where, where, what are the incubators of this hatred? Well, I think what you have, John, is you have a return of a very old hatred, anti-Semitism. And we had about a half century after the Holocaust, right? which ended in 1945, where it was basically politically incorrect in Western societies to go after Jews. You had anti-Semitism was 
I mean, it wasn't completely wiped out, but it was basically a product of Soviet propaganda and in the Arab world. You didn't have it in Western society at anything like the level you have now. That changed two decades ago, and this anti-Semitism is coming back. And the truth, John, is we have a very the world has a very uh, distorted understanding of anti-Semitism, and part of that distortion has to go is because I should say of the Holocaust, because it is such a seismic event in Jewish history, in fact, in world history. You know, six million Jews are murdered. It's a third of the Jewish people. That's the equivalent of over 100 million Americans. And I try to always explain to Americans what the Holocaust did to the Jewish people. Yeah. 100 million Americans, you can't wrap your mind around. No, so you imagine can't. a 9-11 9-11 every day for a century. That's mm. what it means to lose 100 million Americans. Mm. So it is such a seismic event that people forget all the anti-Semitism that predated the Holocaust. I mean, we have 20 centuries of anti-Semitism. And I'd ask you know, some of your listeners, just go online, take a century, pick a century, 5th century, 9th century, 12th century, whatever you want, yeah. and anti-Semitism in that century. And it will shock you that you will have massacres of tens of thousands of Jews or hundreds of thousands of Jews being expelled um, from different countries. You know, the, in the 15th century, from Spain and Portugal, in the 14th century, you know, from France, uh, in earlier century, from, uh, from a Great Britain. And you have anti-Semitic attacks that have hounded the Jews for a century because there was this attempt to demonize the Jews. And we don't have enough in one podcast to go into it, but it was <laughs> the demonization of the Jews was. turning them into a force for evil. And the Holocaust was a culmination of essentially 2,500 years of hatreds uh, towards the Jews, where we had massacres and we had pogroms and we had expulsions and we had all sorts of horrific things that happened. And it culminated in the Holocaust. And then afterwards, it was such an embarrassment and especially the world didn't lift a finger to save the Jews during the Holocaust, that it was not, it was taboo. And it has returned in the last 20 years. I personally dated um, to the Durban conference in South Africa, yep. which became, it was a few days before 9-11, it became a total carnival of hate. And the thing about the, this new anti-Semitism is a lot of it is masked behind hatred to Israel. And then you'll have these people who will say, well, of course, you be, should be able to criticize Israeli policy without being anti-Semitic. Well, of course you can't, but you can't demonize Israel. No, that's you right. can't make these wild allegations of Israel. And here's, here's where people in the media can play an important role. Because what you see happening in the media, and I saw this with, I don't know if he's, if you call him one of your colleagues, but some of these late show hosts like John Oliver and, and Trevor Noah. Right. When you accuse Israel of war crimes, no factual basis whatsoever. Nope. I mean, they kind of don't know what they're talking about. When you accuse Israel of ethnic cleansing, when you use the word apartheid to describe Israel, now all of these allegations are forced, uh, false. And if anyone thinks Israel's an apartheid state, come to an Israeli hospital, come to an Israeli university, come to the Israeli Knesset, come to an Israeli court. It's ridiculous. But you have these allegations of apartheid, of ethnic cleansing, of war crimes, of even genocide, where they're accusing Israel of genocide, which we must be the dumbest genocidal force in history because Palestinians are about 10 times what they were when Israel was established as a state. <laughs> now, point. if you are going to accuse Israel of essentially being like a Nazi state, that's what's so mind-boggling. Yep. People accuse Israel of this and are holding thing is it in the Nazi-Israeli state. Then you are actually enabling anti-Semitism and mm. attacks against Jews. You're saying it's open season on Jews. That's what's happening. You're contributing to the defamation of the Jewish people that is a 2,000-year-old problem, longer than 2,000 years, and we have this return. 
of this ancient hatred in this form, and much of it, much of it is masked behind this hatred of Israel. And I think one thing that people do not understand is this anti-Israel sentiment that you see in certain quarters, and it's certainly on the, on the radical left side of the spectrum. It is a product of a whole zeitgeist. And if I could describe the zeitgeist as simply as possible, I, I, I'll describe it to you this way, Please. John. You know, the Jews made many contributions to religious ideas over the centuries. You know, the idea of monotheism and, and almost an activist monotheism of spreading that, the idea of the rule of law. You know, if you know your Bible, you know, the prophet Absolutely. speaks to King David. I mean, who puts that in their sacred text where a king will be rebuked by a prophet? The idea of universal peace, you know, these visions that they have at the United Nations, the same body that condemns Israel every single day, has on its walls the words of the prophet Isaiah. Meaning we taught the world all of these phenomenal ideas, but we also, I think, made a contribution to political ideas. We were the people, the Jewish people in history, who rejected the idea that might makes right. And we rejected it whether it was an idea of a pharaoh, a Caesar, and certainly a Fuhrer. We would not accept the fact that if you are powerful, that means you're just. The problem I see, John, and I've seen this for 20 years, and I know we've discussed it in the past, we now live in a world where people believe, especially young people who are being churned out by the university, That's the key, they isn't it? might make wrong. They believe might makes wrong. And they see power and justice as those two buckets in a well. You cannot be powerful and just, which, of course, I think the United States of America is yeah. the best. We're living proof that you can. They'd be very powerful and just. But those people who hate Israel, they don't think America is a force for good in the world. They think America is force for bad because that's probably what, they ta what they're taught at their universities, yeah. probably what they're taught in their high schools. And what you see happening is these radical forces are looking at Israel, putting us through this lens that they had. That because you are powerful and because the Palestinians are less powerful and the Palestinians have succeeded through their propaganda to convince the world that they are the David to Israel's Goliath, which is total nonsense, but they've succeeded in doing it, then Israel is wrong. And if you combine that view of the world, that worldview, with a growing demonization of Israel that has been happening for 20 years, then you can see the rise of this anti-Semitism. But I'll tell you, there is a big difference, John. And the enemies of the Jewish people and the enemies of Israel should know this very well. <laughs> we, uh, we survived a lot of empires who came after us. You know, I always would say when I was ambassador in Washington, you know, there's no ambassador of ancient Babylon. And there's <laughs> no ambassador point, yes. of And there's no ambassador of a thousand year right, but there is an ambassador of Israel. And the difference with the Jews today against their enemies, anti-Semitism is back, it's returned in full force. But the difference is now the Jewish people have a state, a sovereign state with the ability to defend themselves against this hatred. And we are blessed, John, to have friends of Israel um, around the world, Jews, Christians, Muslims, people, from, of people of goodwill and good faith around the world who support Israel and will also uh, take a stand against anti-Semitism. And what I would like to see it was, I'd like to see the leaders of the United States take a clear and forceful stand against anti-Semitism, wherever it comes, if it comes on the right or if it comes on the left. And it's more important to call out anti-Semitism on your side of the aisle because it's easy usually to call it uh, on absolutely. the other side. And, yep. and this is something where I actually am grateful that President Biden said that and he was very clear against anti-Semitism. 
I hope others um, on his side of the political aisle will make that stance. And I think if you do that, and if you bring the leadership of the United States together against anti-Semitism, it will be a very, very powerful statement because this is not just a problem for Israel, it's a problem for Jews. And this whole worldview that says anybody that is influential, anybody that is quote unquote powerful, that is inherently bad, that's not a world that's going to be safe for Israel and not a world that's going to be safe for Jews. Because Jews are not living. We, the Jews that I was born and raised in the United States, if your listeners do not know, but Jews have integrated into American society. It's been a great immigrant success story. It is. And they're not, they're not living, tend to a room on the Lower East Side anymore. They have become prominent and influential members and across many occupations have been accepted. And America has been great blessing for the Jews who have become citizens of the United States. It's been a great, and no society in history has helped, has into where the, no society in history, I should say, have the Jews been better integrated than in the United States of America. But when you're dealing with a force where people think anybody that has power, anybody that has quote unquote privilege, anyone who has influence is bad, I don't think that's a very safe world for Jews. I think it's wrong. You can be powerful and just, you can be powerful and unjust, you can be weak and just, you can be weak and unjust. And these ideas that are going through the educational system, which has been happening since I was in college 25 years ago, I can see it then. There are consequences to bad ideas. And you're seeing those, some of those consequences in the streets of the United States today when you have young people attacking Jews in New York and Los Angeles and other places around the United States. And, and I don't think this is just a danger, as I said, to Jews. It's not just a danger to Israel. I think it's very important to push these ideas back, uh, push very hard back against these ideas, because I don't think it's going to be safe um, uh, for other Americans as well. Uh, I think it's important to educate you know, a young generation to believe in the justice of, uh, of the cause of the United States. And we've been blessed as Jews that the United States has been the preeminent power of the world. We've been blessed in Israel for the last 75 years that that has been the case. We know what the world was like before America was the preeminent power in the world. And I think American Jews, Jewish Americans have been blessed by a very powerful and strong United States because it's been a tremendous force for good in the world. With all your imperfections and our imperfections, it's hard for me to see and to think about two greater countries and yeah. that have done more good for more people. One of your colleagues was on the show recently and said that, you know, the thing that mystified him more than anything was that there is an entire industry in the college and university campuses of teaching people to hate America and Israel. They're basically teaching them to reject the values that made this country great and by extension, the relationship with Israel so essential um, do you agree with that? Do you think that these universities have become incubators of hate and intolerance? No question. Yeah. I wouldn't say it of every university, and I right. wouldn't say it of every professor, but I think the cultural zeitgeist that you have in the United States and the educational zeitgeist is one of moral relativism. And if your listeners want to read a book, go read Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind. Yeah. And if you read that book that came out about 30 years ago, you understand the problems that have occurred. But you've gone from a moral relativism to a belief, not that you know there, there is no right and wrong, to believe, yes, there's wrong. And you know what's wrong? Anybody who's powerful is wrong. Anybody who has strength is bad. And you have this moral relativism, this sense of power and justice being the buckets in the well, pacifism, 
and many other isms that we can analyze that have together created this zeitgeist where Israel um, is seen as a problem. And I agree with that person that you interviewed because I think actually we're the low-hanging fruit of a broader anti-Western, anti-American animus that, that cast the United States as a force for bad in the world. And we're the low-hanging fruit of that phenomenon. It's easier to go after Israel. And I think those people, one of the reasons why Americans who are not Jewish and who may be not thinking about Israel that much should care about this issue is that by defending Israel, by standing in solidarity with Israel, I think you're defending also the United States and what it basically stands for, because the same forces that are attacking us will ultimately attack you. You know, I, almost everybody who I meet who dislikes Israel, uh, they don't like America. It's amazing, it's isn't it? Yeah. Somebody who is who, who loves America. You know, there are occasionally people who loves America and they hate Israel, but it's yeah. very few. It's, and it's very rare. yeah, it's very. I rare. have not met I have not met anybody who hates Israel and loves America. It's it's remarkable. I'm sorry, the opposite. I, yeah. I've never met anybody who hates America okay. and loves Israel. Right. That I haven't met. Yeah. I've met the opposite. There's a few of them, but those who hate America in, invariably hate Israel because we're we're not just countries, we're causes. And we 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 stand in solidarity together, anchored really in the same values, and I think driven by the same sense of destiny. And I think that's why it's so important to further strengthen the bonds with uh, between our two countries and push back against these forces that are bad for America, bad uh, for Israel. When when we look at the popularization of some of these views in in a small segment of Congress, the squad, the Ilan Omar sort of comments, how troublesome and how complicating is it that now there are elected officials that actually espouse some of these, uh, one might call them anti-Israel, anti-American, but certainly uh, espouse some of the, the these trend lines. And so does that complicate the picture that, you know, the rest of the world says, well, you've elected people that talk this way. How much of a challenge is that for both Israel and the United States? Well, look, you can have, the, the, the question to me is not if you have this or that congressman who believes in this or that policy. The question is, do their views carry the day? Yeah, do you have point. the leaders of the party who will push back against it? Look, any society can have radicals within it. The question for the society is how do they respond to those radicals? So when you have somebody who, who says these you know, wild things about Israel or makes an anti-Semitic statement, what are the leaders of the party doing to that person? Are they condemning that person or are they embracing that person? You know, that's really the question. And, and I've said it before, and I'm saying it now, you, you have anti-Semitism on the left, and people like Farrakhan, right. I think, who's been a huge, huge source of this poison for a very, very long, long time. time. Yep. And you have somebody like David Duke on the right, who is just a, a, a complete anti-Semite also for several decades. But there is a difference between Farrakhan and Duke. And the difference is no one will take a picture with David Duke. Right. And, 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 and the way that people handle Farrakhan tells you something about whether or not anti-Semitism is acceptable in America. If it's not acceptable, then you have to shun him. You have to push him back. And I frankly don't see that happening. And I think things that were seen as being beyond the pale have, have, have come into the mainstream. And that should, should concern people. And I think the demand should be 
that leaders have to speak out forcefully. I'd say here again, I think President Biden has said the right thing, and I think he's done the right thing. And it's important for others to join him and to push back against it and really to unite beyond the partisan politics, beyond the polarization that happens and that's happening in, in the United States. It's important to unite together. I didn't see that happen um, under President Trump. I didn't see that people came together to stand strongly and firmly against anti-Semitism. Everything became about politics. Yep, it did. And I hope, I hope that the people who disagree with the administration on this or that policy will put that politics aside and stand together in pushing back against anti-Semitism in a united way. Uh, and I think that, that would, I think, be a very strong signal to the Jews of the United States. And I think it, it will, um, it'll help us, I think, move in a different direction. Because if they don't do it, and this, you know, what you could call a Corbynization process, meaning after Jeremy Corbyn right. in, in England, who became the head of the Labor Party, and thankfully the British people did not make him prime minister of the country. We were very close to that happening, where you have an actual anti-Semite being the prime minister of Great Britain. And that certainly was not the case since World War uh, uh, II. Uh, it's very important to not have these Corbyn, Corbynizing forces get stronger and stronger, but be pushed back. And I think the, ultimately the people will decide with the American people. If they keep reelecting people who have these terrible views uh, about Jews, about Israel, uh, then they're going to continue to grow in strength if they're rejected by the American public. If it's not seen as legitimate to have these views, then I think they're going to be pushed back to the margins. Our last question, because I know you're, you're real busy. Uh, the the you mentioned President Biden, but I noticed you haven't mentioned in any of your recent talk. You know, uh, uh, Senator Schumer, uh, Nancy Pelosi, some of the other members of the Democratic Party. Republican Party seems to be very strongly against uh, anti-Semitism. They've been on it from day one and really denouncing it. Do you wish that uh, single out Pelosi because she has to deal with the squad all the time? Can she do more, you think, to stamp out the the sort of sentiments that that give everybody pause and concern right now? I think she has been very vocal in the past about anti-Semitism. And I think it's something that she cares about. It comes from her father, who actually spoke very forcefully out against anti-Semitism during um, uh, the Second World War, during the Holocaust, and really took on. The own leader of, of his party, party yeah, yeah. he was the mayor of Baltimore, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And I think it's important to always do more. And I think that a missed opportunity was a couple of years ago when I was a sitting ambassador and Elon Omar, uh, a young congresswoman, said right. something that was clearly anti-Semitic and beyond the pale. And the Congress did not condemn her. And ultimately, what was voted on was something that Congresswoman Omar voted on herself, which right. tells you the nature of the condemnation. Yep. That, to me, was a defining moment. When a party cannot take a stand against that type of anti-Semitism, it does not bode well. And so I would ask respectfully, you know, Speaker Pelosi to recapture that voice, to speak out very forcefully against anti-Semitism, to not embrace those and, and who would not only say anti-Semitic things, but who would demonize Israel. No one in the Democratic Party should call Israel an apartheid state. No one in the Republican Party should call Israel an apartheid state. It is a lie. No one should say that Israel is engaging in genocide. It is a lie. No one should say that Israel is engaged in ethnic cleansing. It is a lie. 
No one should say that Israel's engaged in war crimes. It is a lie. And when you allow people to say this and to get away with saying it, you are creating an environment that allows for this open season on Jews that is happening now. It is very important to push back. I think it's we're at a moment, maybe I hate to use one of those words like inflection point. Right. But there's this is an ancient, ancient hatred. And that's a powder keg that, as I said, for 50 years was sort of put away. And now it's back. And these people, whether it's a John Oliver or Trevor Noah or all these people who are sending all these allegations, demonizing Israel, saying things that are libelous and false, they're playing with matches. And they should not do that. And I don't think it would be happening if it was against another group like African-Americans. Yeah, where no, people right. have no has have no tolerance for racism. It wouldn't happen if it was uh, against the LGBT community where anything that is said is immediately pushed by the mark back uh, and is and, and is seen as being completely unacceptable. Um, that has to be the same standard. When it comes to anti-Semitism, there can be no tolerance, zero tolerance for anti-Semitism. And the only way you show that is by speaking forcefully out against it. Ultimately, you know, people are going to elect who they're going to elect. But I think it's what the what the leaders say that matters as much is what this or that congresswoman uh, says. Yeah. Uh, and we've learned for a long time, silence is complicity. That's one of the hardest lessons that we've learned through world history. Ambassador Dermer, it's such an honor to have you on. We look so forward to your insights, and uh, yeah, I think you help us make sense of a lot. Uh, this anti-Semitism thing just really has been bothering me for a long time, and I'm so glad that we could really dig into it today and get people a better understanding and also a call to action to to stand up and, and let's let's fight it now. Let's not let it get any further. Uh, thank remember, you so much. Remember, John, it, it starts with the Jews, but it never ends with the Jews. Nope. We have long been the canary in the coal mine of civilization. And those forces that attack the Jews are going to ultimately be a problem for many more. But the good news, as I said to you before, there's no ambassador from Babylon. There's no ambassador from Imperial Rome. There's no ambassador for the Thousand Year Reich. Israel's here and Israel's here to stay. Yeah, for sure. Well, so we're so grateful for your time and the fact that you were here today to help us educate uh, our listeners. And uh, we wish you well and hope to get you back on the show soon. Take care. Look forward to it. Thank you, sir. All right, folks, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, folks, hard to believe that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. Really enjoyed that conversation with Ambassador Dermer. He's very thoughtful, very uh, studious of the Israeli-American experience, the relationship. I also think... He's one of the first few people that I, I have brought on the show in recent weeks that ties the rise of anti-Semitism to something bigger, anti-Americanism, anti-freedom, anti-power, anti-success. The endemic in all of the anti-Semitism is a greater rejection of success, power, Americanism, freedom, constitutionality. And uh, I, I think 
the point he made today that fighting anti-Semitism in many ways is fighting anti-Americanism is a very valiant, valuable point to consider. I've heard a lot of people beginning to say this to me, which is what's going on in America most clearly in seen in the rapid rise of violence and hateful acts against Jews in America is a greater rejection of more things in America than just our beloved relationship with Israel. And uh, I do believe when we look back that that's going to be something very important to consider. Now, uh, before we go to break, I want to uh, close for the day. I want to shout out one of our great friends of this show, the Birch Gold Group, some of the top dealers of precious metals in the United States, great Better Business Bureau rating, a lot of five-plus ratings from customers, satisfied customers. This is a company with a stellar reputation, stellar advice, and um, also somebody that helps open your eyes to some investment options you might not have been thinking about in a rising inflation economy, in a bubble economy, because a lot of people think the market's in a bubble that could burst at any moment. Uh, you know, I didn't know this until I met these great guys at Birch Gold Group, but you can take part of your qualified retirement funds, either in the IRA or 401k, and you can put them into gold and silver. Have that extra backing precious metals in your portfolio, something tangible to hold, something that's held value for a long time and grown in value. Well, the folks at Birch Gold have created a special opportunity for those of us here at Just the News and John Solomon Reports. They've created a special 20-page guide that walks you through how, if you choose, uh, to integrate gold and silver into your retirement strategy, how to roll over qualified 401k and IRAs, uh, and the benefits, the process, the benefits, the long-term investment strategy. This is a fantastic document. It comes with no commitment. It's uh, commitment-free. All you got to do is look at it. I think when you read it, you're going to want to do more. You're going to want to act on it. I did. I think it's worth acting on. So how do you do it? Well, they did it, made it real easy for us here at Just the News. You go to birchgold.com. That's B-I-R-C-H Gold dot com slash just news one word just news birchgoldgroup.com slash just news and you go get the free info kit and as you're going along you're going to get something else for a limited time you can find out how you can qualify for up to ten thousand dollars in free precious metals on your purchase just because you're a just the news fan and a john solomon reports podcast fan so grateful for their generosity so grateful for their input in this great product this risk-free book. It's just something to check out. You learn and you walk away saying, hey, I've got another tool in my toolbox, another weapon in my arsenal to protect my hard-earned retirement savings. I can put some of my 401k or my IRA, if it's qualified to do so, in precious metals. What a great idea. Well, check them out. It's real simple. Birchgold.com slash just news. That's how you get started. And if you're lucky, you may even get $10,000 in free precious metals on your purchase. That is something worth saving. All right, folks, have a blessed night. Have a great night. Thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with more news from justthenews.com and John Solomon Reports.